right. So today I am very, very excited because you guys are a good looking bunch of people. That's right. So yeah, I was fishing for that. Thank you. So we're starting a new series today and to start it, I want to go back to our childhood for just a second. And I want to ask how many of you as a child either planned to or you did run away from home? Anybody plan to or run away? <laughs> yeah. All right. Bunch of rebels. All right. So a lot of us, we packed a bag or we had a plan, uh, or, or some of you actually did it, it looks like. But I want to show you uh, some funny notes that kids have left before they ran away, okay? So here's this one. It says, by the time you read this, I might, M-I-T, um, I might be leaving. If you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you go right from our house. I love you. <laughs> Here's another one. Mom, I'm going to run away tomorrow at 9.30 when you and dad are sleeping. Be sure to say goodbye forever. P.S. I will be back tonight. <laughs> Here's another one. All right. Hey, mother and dad, do not call the FBI or police. I will be back at Wednesday. The reason why I have done this is because you are mean. Not the reason why we always we all wanted to run away. All right, so here we go. To mom, I'm going to run away because you are being mean to me. If you want to know where I am, I'm at Filets or the Co-op or McDonald's. See you never again in my life. <laughs> Love it. And then here is my favorite ever. Mom, I ran away, not because you're mean or anything. I only wanted to meet the Spice Girls. You know, we all, we all have our running stories, right? But man, you know what? When we become adults, you know, we don't necessarily get over it all the time. Now, there's still a part of us that something inside of us that sometimes we like to run as well. So today, we kick off a brand new series, and it's called On Mission. And in this series called On Mission, we're actually going to be studying what Charles Dickens called the greatest story ever told. And it's a parable that Jesus told in the Bible in Luke 15. Now, you've heard it called a couple of different things. It's called the parable of the lost son or a lot of times the prodigal son story. And many of you have heard it before. But I wanted to let you know that it is a mistake to believe that this is a story just about one lost son. And in fact, Jesus actually, when he starts this story in verse 11 of 15... Verse, or chapter 15, he says there was a man who had two sons, okay? Not just one. So what I hope that we see by the end of this series is that this story, it is more accurately, probably more accurately called the parable of the two sons, okay? Because there were actually two, two sons in the story and both of them got seriously lost. Both of them. And so throughout this series, three weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to talk about three different characters in this story. We're going to talk about the two, the two sons and the father. And I want to tell you, if you've never heard this story or if you've heard it a million times since Sunday school, I want to promise you two things. One is you're going to learn some, something new in a very powerful way. Secondly is I am praying that God would use this story and this series to actually transform me, you, transform all of us with the story of the two lost sons. So, 
Let's start at the beginning, okay? Let's talk about the context. Why did Jesus tell this story in the first place? And I think this is important. If you really want to understand the story, we got to understand why he would tell it, okay? So in Luke 15, 1, it tells us the context, okay? And it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. In other words, every time that Jesus, every time he went around, when you read through the Gospels, he was always gathering a crowd. The crowd was always there with Jesus, no matter where we went. And the crowd, was, in the crowd, were always tax collectors and sinners. In other words, the worst of the worst of their society. And we need to know that this is actually the environment that Jesus tells his parables in. He was always gathering the worst of the worst around him. Which brings me to this question. How did Jesus who was the only perfect person in all of history. How did he manage to attract extremely flawed people in mass? Now, as your pastor there, I'm far from from perfect, but the question that I ask is, do flawed people want to be around me? Do people far from God want to be around us? When I get out, you know, outside the church, maybe I'm traveling or doing different things, you know, and, uh, and I'll meet somebody, strike up a conversation, they'll ask me, it'll always come up, what do you do? And if I tell them I'm a pastor, you know, there's this preconceived notion about how I'm going to treat them based upon how they've been treated in the past by pastors or by a church or, or maybe it's just their assumptions about pastors, you know, because sometimes us church people have really tainted the church and the body of Christ and the name Christian, and, and especially pastors. And, uh, and so we, we are portrayed as those people who are judgmentally or judgmental and that, that kind of thing. And so a lot of times when they hear that we're Christians or they hear that I'm a pastor, you know, that their historical context for me is not great. But what I want to do is I want to change the narrative for people who are far from God so that they feel comfortable and really want to be around Followers of Jesus. And you see, that's the model that actually Jesus shows us. And look, if we don't live a life where we understand that we have a life on mission, it's the same mission that Jesus had, to love people into the kingdom. The same mission that he passed on to us through the Great Commission is to go into all the world, to our world, and to share the good news of his sacrifice and his love. So I want to let you know that here at Living Word, like when we make decisions around here, we don't always make the decisions based, upon, based around what will make all the church people happy. We can't do that because we've got to be able to reach out to a lost world. We have to be on mission. And look, that is a part of the DNA of this church. And look, I'm sorry, if you, if you don't understand that and grasp that and what our mission is, is to go into our world and actually attract lost people, people who are far from God. I hate to tell you, this place is going to bug you. The parking is going to bug you. The full services are going to bug you. A lot of the decisions that we make are specifically to attract families, hurting families and people that are far from God so we can present them with the gospel. That's, That's what our mission is. And we've got to be able to see our cities and our towns transformed where people feel comfortable coming and wanting to be a part of a church where they can hear about life and hope. And honestly, that makes some Christians mad because they want it to be all about them. They think the church should be like a country club for Christians versus a hospital for flawed people. When I was a young man, I went to a church in Tulsa, 
And I love this church. It was a church specifically designed to lead people who are far from God to God, to Jesus. And I'll never forget a, uh, somebody in the church. I just happened to be there, and I was talking with the pastor. And somebody came up, and they were complaining about the people outside who were smoking and how that was a bad example for those that were coming in. And I'll never forget what that pastor said. He said, you know what? I would turn this whole place into an ashtray if I could get rid of the gossip and the judgmentalness. That guy put his tail between his legs and he, and he pouted off. But here's the thing. Even my parents, who we followed in ministry for, for years, were making decisions based upon not who we were trying to keep, but who we were trying to reach. You see, that's the heart of this church. And look, I know that makes some people mad, but guess what? It did in Jesus' day as well. Because in the next verse, as Jesus was welcoming all these sinners around, listen to the response of these religious elite. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were all the religious people. They muttered. They complained. I don't like this music. I don't like that the children's ministry looks like Disney World. I don't like that program. They, want to, they need to do what I want to do. And then he, they said this. This man, he welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. Eating with somebody is like a massive sign that you want to be around them. I want to eat with you. But this was the response of the religious leaders. And so Jesus, when he sees this, when he hears this, he was so, he was so put off that he told three parables in a row just to reprimand them in public. And the greatest of these parables, the third one, was the parable of the two lost sons that we're going to talk about. And I'm going to read it to you today, and I'm going to summarize part of it, in, but hopefully in a way that you can hear it in a fresh way, in a new way. All right? So Luke 15, 11, Jesus tells this parable. He says, there was, Jesus had a man who, who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So his father, he divided it up between the two sons. And not long after that, the younger son, he gets together everything that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth on wild living. And later on, we find out that it was on prostitutes and, and who knows what else. But after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and then he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country that he was in, and uh, who sent him to his fields feeding his pigs. Now, I cannot tell you how embarrassing and humiliating this would have been, especially because he was Jewish. And in Jewish society, pigs were considered unclean, okay? So it says, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods or the food that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And then it says, when he came to his senses, I want you to remember that. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to dad and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then he said, he would say, father, I know I can't be your son anymore. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you just make me like one of your hired servants? Will you just hire me? So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran to him, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, and look, we know that he had rehearsed this speech all the way home. 
just imagining what happens if dad won't accept me back? What will life be like as a servant? What is my brother gonna say? What kind of shame will I bear? So he would have rehearsed this speech over and over and over. And so now he actually has the chance to give it. And so he says, Father, he goes into a speech. I've sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad stops him right there. He interrupts him, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This would be where he accepts him completely back into the family. No shame. And then the father... He says, bring the fatted calf and they're gonna throw a huge party. And while they're partying, the brother is out in the, out in the field working because like he's the perfect brother, right? You know who that is. And he's so mad. He hears the music and he hears the party and he's livid. He's so angry that the father would accept this younger son back in after, after humiliating the family. And so the father goes out to the field to bring the older brother back in. And the older brother says, no, 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 I've worked for you my entire life and you haven't given me a party like this. You haven't honored me like this. And the dad says, look, everything that I've ever had has always been yours. And then the story ends, like a cliffhanger. (laughs) Jesus doesn't finish it, to be continued, never. What I want to do today is I want to zone in on the younger son. We'll talk about the older brother and the father in the next few weeks. But today, I want to dig in and look at this lost son. And I really want you to understand that we, a lot of times, are a lot like this lost son. Because honestly, all of us, we have all run from God at times. And we've all done wrong things. I have, you have, we all have. And when we listen to this story, it's like, you know, well, what was so wrong about the lost son? You know, he, well, he just, so he went to another country, wasted some money. What's the big deal? But in our lack of understanding of the Jewish culture that Jesus would have told this story in, we miss some things. And when we look at this parable through the eyes of this first century audience, see, they knew some things that we don't know. It comes alive. And I want to let you know that this story, it would have been shocking. Like when Jesus would have told this story, people would have gasped. You could have heard it. They would have freaked out, especially when Jesus said that the younger son went to ask for his inheritance from his father. While his father was still alive, people would have actually gasped. Why? Well, there is a a Middle Eastern historian. His name is Kenneth Bailey. All his books are amazing. But he he wrote this about the culture of the day. He said, in all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, this one instance, from ancient times to present, there is no case of any son, there's no case ever of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. Now, What would happen in that society is that the father would pass on his inheritance when he died, okay? He would give two-thirds to the older son who who became kind of the new leader of the family and then one-third to the younger son in this particular parable. So the older son would have got a double portion of the inheritance. But in that culture, you would never, ever ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive. And if you did that, it was actually to ask and demand that the father be dead. So if you asked for your inheritance before your father was dead, it was actually as if 
you were wishing your father to die culturally. God, I don't, or Father, I don't love you for what, who you are. I just love you for what you'll give me. In fact, this guy, he, he actually spent 40 years in the Middle East, and he would walk into villages in the Middle East, and he would ask this same question for 40 years to thousands of people. And he would ask, has anybody ever made this kind of request to ask for their inheritance while their father hadn't died? And every single person in every village always said, never. It doesn't happen. And so then he would ask, well, could anybody even make a request like this? And every single person would say, no, that's impossible. You can't even request that. So then he asked the third question, which is, so if somebody did ask, what would actually happen? And this is what they told him. They said the father would actually beat him and disown him because that was a request for where they requested that the father was dead. So I wonder sometimes, how many times in this context have I wished that God was dead? How many times have we wished that our father God was dead? Wow, Micah, what do you mean? Watch this. When we tell God, God, you don't have any demand on my life. You don't get to tell me about my life and how to live my life, my morality, my sexuality, my finances. You stay away. What are we telling him? We're saying we wish you were dead. And in many ways, you know, I I think in a way, this is where our culture has gone right? Because that's our culture right now is where we're running. We don't want God to pour into our lives or to impose anything into our life. No, we want our good life now. And in essence, and in context, in this Jewish context, we wish he was dead. Because in this culture right now, here's what we want. I want to be my own person, my own identity, my own human being, and I want a life with no rules, no restrictions, Nobody can tell me what to do. And that's the life that so many people in our culture want. So we want no rules, no restrictions. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. We're just running. And so in this story, the son ran to a distant land because he thought he would have no rules, no restrictions. He could do whatever he want. And he thought it would make him happy. And sometimes our running, maybe it's not to a faraway land. You know, we've done this. I mean, you look back. And, you know, maybe it was that freshman year in college. Maybe it was that trip to Vegas. Maybe that spring break. I mean, it could have been an affair. Addictions. Could be when we are running from our spouse. Our kids. Our parents. That financial mistake you made. You know, where you made that big purchase I mean, it could be, you know, just where you don't want to get baptized. I'll I'll give my life to Christ, but I don't want to do that. Or you don't want to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. Maybe you're sitting in church today, and you're not a part of what's going on. You've been here for years, possibly, but you're just doing your own thing. You're not being a part. So why do we run? I think sometimes we run because we think God's restricting us. Right? We think God is going to hold us back from all the fun that we have. We want no rules and nobody to tell me what to do, and that's how I have a happy life. Which actually sounds amazing until the consequences. I've heard preachers say sometimes, you know, sin is not fun. 
Actually, yeah, it is. I mean, in the moment, sin is fun. If you don't think sin is fun, you are not doing it right. I'm just, I'm just telling you. <laughs> sin can be incredibly fun in the moment. But then we have to deal with the consequences, all the fallout. And the consequences put us in that, in that pig pen with the pigs. And when we live the kind of life where we're just doing what we want to do because it feels good in the moment and we don't want anybody to, con- anybody to tell us what to do, then we have to live with the aftermath that always live- leads to pain. And when we do that, we always end up somewhere where we never thought we'd be. Have you ever ended up in a place that you never thought you would be? Some of us are there right now in this moment. We're like, how did I even get here? Well, it was one small step at a time, doing your thing, running away from God. You didn't want your restrictions. You don't want anybody to say anything about what you're doing. You're not taking advice. You're not even asking for advice from anybody that God puts in your life. And so when we flee from God, when we run away from God, here's the thing about God, is when you run, God's not going to stop you. He will actually let you run. You have free will. Well, why wouldn't God stop this from happening? No, you are making the decisions and God will let you run from him. Why? Because he loves you. Did you know you can't have love without the freedom to accept or, or reject? Think about it. If you're in a marriage relationship, would you want that person to lock you in a house and not let you out ever? I love you. <laughs> no, you don't want that kind of love. And God loves us so much. And the power of his love is this, that we have the freedom to accept or reject him. He wants a a relationship with you. And a relationship requires that you have to accept and choose to seek him. And if we choose to run, he will let us. And look, here's what we have to know is this, is God always doesn't always shield us from the pain of our choices. Look, he'll always forgive you. But there is, there is almost always pain associated. Now, some of us, we have experienced pain because of somebody else's choices. Somebody else made a really bad choice that affected us. Some of us are hurt badly from others. And for that, I am very sorry. But we've got to admit that a lot of times we're in the situations we're in because of our choices. And even if somebody else hurt me, You know, so many times I see this so much is that because of our reaction to other people offending us and hurting us, we actually amplify the pain. And a lot of times we're dealing with the pain of our own choices. And look, God will not always shield you from that pain. In fact, God, listen, God will actually let you run and exhaust yourself. Because we think that the only thing we need in life is more of what we already have. And that'll fix everything. And being on that treadmill is exhausting. But the thing we need to know is that we've got to turn back to him. And that could be because you never knew him or you walked away from him. Or it could just be an area of your life that you know you're not where you need to be. You're not obeying and doing what you need to do. And we've got to get to a place where we're, we're ready to say, look, I'm tired of doing it my way. Because it's got me to the pigsty. And God, I want to do it your way. But here's what's interesting. When we get tired of running and life's not going the way that we want to, why is it that it takes us so long 
to try to come back home? (laughs) In the story of the prodigal son, why did it take him so long to actually realize? I mean, he is at the bottom of the barrel. He wants to eat pig food. He could have gone back home earlier. Why did it take him so long to turn back? For some of us, we think that God's mad at us. Like, God's not going to accept me with what I did. Regardless of the reason, I think that one of the main reasons why is shame. There's just so much shame. And we're not sure that we would be accepted again because of everything that we've done. And listen, when Jesus told this story, everybody in his audience would have knew why it took the son so long to come home. They would have known. Because the reason was that in Jewish law at this time, and Jesus' audience would have known this, is that in Jewish law, there was the Talmud. That wasn't the written law, but it was the verbal laws. In other words, like the cultural laws of that day. And everybody there would have known that if a son got his inheritance, even after the father died, but he got in his inheritance and he went off and wasted it with wild living, with Gentiles is the way it was said, if he ever tried to come back home, the Talmud would require the, the people in the community to perform this specific ceremony to show him all his shame and actually cut him off completely. It, the, Kenneth Bailey, he also writes and, and explains that if a Jewish son-in-law, I mean, I'm sorry, a Jewish son took his inheritance, squanders it, comes back, then the community performed this ceremony, ceremony and it was actually called Kizazah. And here's what would happen. If the son ever tried to come back home after shaming the family and wasting the inheritance, the Talmud said the whole village would take a pot and they would fill the pot with the most putrid smells that you could ever imagine. They'd fill it up with like rotting vegetables and other things that your imagination can can, uh, fill in. But when the son came back home, they would all come out and they would meet him at, at the edge of the village and they would hold the pot in front of him. And what they would do is as he was trying to come home, they would throw the pot at his feet and it would shatter all over him. And the smell would just fill the air in front of him and the brokenness would be evident to him. And the whole village would say, you are cut off. They would all chant it. It was a ceremony It was designed to shame him and show him that he's never, ever accepted again home because of what he had done. This was not God's ceremony. This was man's ceremony. It was the oral law. And a lot of times we feel like that. We feel like God has a pot with their name on it. And if we ever came back, he's too ashamed of us. People are too ashamed of us that if we ever made a decision to come back home, People would shame us. And I think that's why so many people wait to come back home. Or or maybe what somebody here needs to hear right now, possibly for the first time ever. But here's what I want you to get today. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. If you have been running, God does not see you as broken. He sees you as loved. You are his child but you'll never ever overcome your brokenness until you come home to his love. And so the shocking part of this story is that the father not only welcomed his son, but he ran to his son. 
And everybody standing there listening to this parable from Jesus would have known that Kizaza is what should have happened. Everybody that was there in Jesus' audience would have known that that's what should have happened. But God showed, Jesus told a different way. So if you've been running from God, I want to let you know in just a minute, we're going to give you an opportunity to come back home. But also, there's some of us that, you know, it's not like our salvation is in question. But you know that there are areas of your life that you've taken back. And you maybe feel like you're in that pigsty or you're eating pig food in your life. And you can feel the pain. You can sense the pain. And maybe even you know it's hurting other people around you. And I just want to let you know that you can come back home today. He's waiting and he's watching afar off. And in just a minute, you're going to have an opportunity to just to let that go as well. God, I'm coming back home in this area of my life. But for some of us, that thing that we've taken back from him, it's simply our witness. You know, before Jesus left, he left us with one mandate to do. And that was to go into our world, all the world, and to make disciples, teaching them the things that he had taught us. And look, I want to say that this is a place that is designed where day by day, week by week, to draw people closer to God, to actually build strong families and make disciples. And God has placed in my life, in your life, people it could be your neighbors, your coworkers, your schoolmates, your teammates. It could be your family members. Whoever it is, God has placed strategically people in our lives so that we could be a light to them, that we could share his love and bring them to him and also to his body here. This place that's designed to help us take next steps toward him as well as toward who he has called us to be. You see, Easter is in three weeks. And for many of us, we've given our lives to Christ. We've given our finances. You know, we volunteer. We, you know, and, and we want to make this an atmosphere where people from the outside feel welcome. But here's my question. Who are you bringing to Easter? It's in three weeks. And on your, on your seat, you'll find these two cards here. One is a prayer card with the red outline around it. What I want you to do, I want you to just ask God to bring to your thought, to your memory, people in your life that could use Him, a touch from Him, that are maybe far from God, that could use a place like this, His body, to encourage them, to give them hope. And so there are, that card is actually perforated. And what I'd like for you to do uh, in just a little while is their pens in the back of the chairs. Just write down their names, but write them twice because here's what we want to do. I want you to be praying for them over the next three weeks and pray for opportunities that God would open up a door in conversation or whatever where you could invite them to Easter. And the, uh, our Easter theme is Hope Lives. We're going to be talking about how Jesus brings hope into a hopeless world. And it's going, to be a, it's going to be an amazing opportunity to present them with the love of Jesus.
And then if you'll put it on that card twice, and then just it's perforated so you can tear it off. And then on your way out, if you would drop it in one of the offering buckets, what we want to do is as a staff, we want to pray along with you for them. Okay, And you can put their first name, you can put their first and last name, it doesn't matter, just a contact point where we can pray with you for those people that you're praying with. And then also there is an invitation in your seat. I want to encourage you, you're going to hear a little bit more about this in a video in just a second. It's our Easter weekend, we have a big, uh, big cookout, Easter egg hunt for adults and children, children of all ages um, on Saturday, and then we'll have our three Easter services on Sunday. Huh? Oh, food trucks. Not, not a cookout. They're food trucks. But we're going to have food. But the question is, when is the last time that you invited somebody who's far from God to come home? When was the last time you sat in church with somebody that was right next to you that needed to come home? And if it's been a while, you know that. And I just want to challenge you. Don't come to Easter alone. Every one of us, we want to make sure that we're praying for people and we wanna do our best not to come to Easter without somebody. And I'm promising you, God will impact their life and in the process, it'll impact yours as well. Because we were designed to be like Jesus, welcoming people home all the time. And that is why we exist as a church. That is our mission. And I just wanna challenge each and every one of us to be on mission. Will you stand with me?